Again, that's Romans 9, page 945. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over to the, over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you. It's a privilege to be here and to uh, preach the Word of God today. Calls to me to preach Romans chapter 9, which is, if, it's, if we were on being honest, it's not the easiest passage of Scripture. It says some hard things. Um, but the reason uh, why it is difficult is not that it's difficult to interpret, um, but that it, it does say some hard things. But we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so what brings us to this scripture today? Well, over Easter we've spent time looking at uh, Paul's gospel in Romans. If you remember on Good Friday, if you are here, we looked at Romans 5 and Jason spoke on this scripture. He said, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And on Easter Sunday, we looked into chapter 6 and we discovered that our justification, our righteous standing before God, that's not all that God has planned for us. And we, we looked into chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and we discovered that God has a new life for us and the promise of a resurrection. So that brings us to Romans chapter 9. And after reading chapter 9, you might think that Paul's gone off track. He's off track on his gospel message and he's dealing with another topic. But actually, when we read chapters 9 and chapters 10 and chapters 11 together, what we actually discover is that Paul is only doing really what he's been doing since chapter 1. And that's to convince us of this truth. That there's only one way in which a, purchase, a person sorry, can have a righteous standing before God. And that it's his gift, an act of his kindness, by which he calls us to himself, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to faith in Jesus Christ. This is still what this section of scripture is about. But what Paul does in Romans 9 is clear away a theological obstacle. It's an obstacle that some might have that would prevent them from obtaining that righteousness. So what's the obstacle? Well, the obstacle is Israel and their continued unbelief. Because after considering Paul's gospel message, we might ask, what are we to make of God's dealings with Israel? Aren't they God's children? The descendants of Abraham, aren't they his adopted sons? Didn't God make promises to them? And if the Messiah came through them and to them, then salvation and all the promises of God should belong to Israel. And Paul notes these blessings, if you look with me in verses 4 and 5, he says this, They are the Israelites, and then to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Now that's quite a list of blessings, isn't it? But here's Paul in the first century, and he's preaching the gospel to Greeks and Romans. Because God's people Israel, to, to a large extent, they don't believe it. They rejected the Messiah. So can you see the objection to Paul's gospel now? Why should we believe you, Paul? Your gospel preaches as though all the promises to God, to Israel, have come to nothing. And that's why Paul says this in verse 6. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
So what's the reason why Paul would say that? Well, what I want to do is summarise his whole argument in chapters 9, 10 and 11 so that you can see where he's going. The word of God has not failed as it pertains to Israel because the Israel of God are actually the full number of those that inherit the promises of God for salvation in Christ and they're chosen by God and called by faith to him in Jesus whether they be Jew or Gentile. So how does Romans 9 help us to get to that conclusion? Well, verse 6, Paul continues. He says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abram, because there is offspring. Nor are all the children Abraham's true descendants. Can you see? The Israel that God has set his love upon, who will inherit his promises, is not an ethnic line. Now, many, many Christians mistake make this mistake that Paul is trying to correct here, and in fact the Jews did themselves. So it's important to see how Paul unfolds his argument from Israel's own history in this passage. And he starts this in verse 7. He says, But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now this is a quote from Genesis chapter 21, where God is telling Abraham that he's going to send away Ishmael, Abraham's son, to a slave woman, because God's promises to Abraham and to his seed weren't for him. Uh, Ishmael was Abraham's descendant, but he wasn't to inherit. Instead, God's family was to come through Isaac, God's choice. And Paul continues, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So if you know the story, Isaac had two sons to his wife, Rebekah. They were twins. Esau was born first. But yet before they were ever born, God declared by his sovereign decree that the Abrahamic blessings from God would now lie with Jacob. Now why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Was it something that Jacob or Esau had done? Well, the scripture says no. Because Paul reminds us here that God's choice became before they were ever born, before they had done anything good or anything bad. The choice to bless one and not the other depended on God's gracious election. Now we saw this theme recently in our study of the Minor Prophets over and over again, and so it's not surprising that that's exactly where Paul goes to, to the book of Malachi, to prove his point. And I think it's worth looking up this uh, passage, I think, to see it for ourselves once again. So if you want to turn with me, just keep your finger in Romans uh, chapter 9. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 801. So chapter 1 of Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. And starting in uh, verse 2, I think it is, um, God says to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have we loved us? And God says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. See, here in Malachi, God was reminding Israel of his special love for them. Israel were judged under the Old Covenant for their wickedness, and he sent them off into exile. But he brought back a remnant to fulfill his promises through to to Israel. 
but not Edom, the descendants of Esau. Even though Esau was Jacob's brother, they were not allowed to rebuild. See, God had mercy for one and not the other, even though both nations were born from the Abrahamic line. So if you come back with me to Romans, that's really the point that Paul is making. The fulfilment of God's promises do not depend on a particular ethnic line. God is not restricted to act in a certain way by a person's family ties, even if those ties are to someone he's chosen to bless. Instead, what we find is that God has made various choices about people in history, some of whom receive his mercy and some who do not. When we consider things from God's perspective, this chapter allows us to discover that, in fact, he is the one that determines our purpose in his history. Now, that's a hard truth for us to accept, isn't it? But if, if we're honest, it's the fact that we don't like this is because as sinful people, we forget that we're actually part of God's creation. We instead prefer, the, prefer this idea that we're the ones writing our story and writing the story, but it's not our story and it's for God to write. But scriptures like this show us ultimately that no matter how it might think that we have the final say, actually it's God that's in control. And he's worked out all this for his glory. Now Paul's a good theologian and he anticipates human resistance that we feel to God's sovereignty. And that's why he says what he says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, says Paul? Now that's another way of saying, but that's not fair. And when we actually say that, when that's not fair, we're actually accusing God of acting unjustly. Well, Paul says absolutely not. We cannot level a charge of unfairness against God. Why is that? Well, God told Moses in Exodus chapter 22, says Paul, and this is the chapter back in Genesis where God tells Moses that he set his favour upon him and that he will reveal his goodness and his glory to Moses and, and only to Moses in this way. Well, what does God say? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Why is it not unfair? Because it's God's mercy to give. It's not ours. It's not yours. What gives rise in our hearts to this accusation that God is being unfair? Is it not that we think we can lay claim to God's mercy and that it should be dispensed as we see fit and not how God sees fit? And to push this point home, Paul reminds us of Pharaoh. Why? Well, I think that's because there's a flip tide to receiving mercy from God, isn't there? Pharaoh was another figure from the book of Exodus whom Moses was made to challenge on God's authority. But unlike Moses who received God's favour, Pharaoh had a different role to play in God's story. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, the flip side of mercy is not receiving mercy. And if you know the story about Pharaoh, God sent plagues and swallowed them up in the Red Sea. But he rescued his people because of that. So God is sovereign over the part, too, where people don't receive mercy. Because it's God's story and it's written to glorify him, his name and his power and grace is at the heart of the decisions that he makes. And so they're beyond our criticism. He's the creator, the redeemer and the judge of mankind, which is the point behind verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Will you, clay pot, on the crafter's table, speak back to your maker? No, we must stop and we must be silent. And as humbling and maybe as difficult a truth as it is to wrap our heads around, I want to encourage us today to embrace the truth with all our hearts because God's sovereignty is really at the root of our own confidence when it comes to our salvation. If you know chapter 8 of Romans, you know that Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, in this very chapter, Paul said he, he could wish himself a curse separated by Christ, but it can't happen, not by his will. Also, God's election and calling is also the cure for work salvation. Look at verse 16. It does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Because if salvation ultimately depended on our will, then we would be pursuing a righteousness that is not by God's grace. And that actually is the error of the Israelites in Paul's day. Jump down all the way to verse 32, and Paul talks about this. I think it's verse 32, it's around about there. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. You see, the Israelites had forgotten God's grace. They'd forgotten that God had chosen Isaac, that he'd loved Jacob and not Esau, that it wasn't their lineage that made them acceptable to God, nor was it their performance in accordance with the law. The law at Sinai that came long after God had loved Isaac and Jacob and Moses and indeed the entirety of the Israelites when he rescued them out of Egypt. In fact, probably with some of the Egyptians that wanted to go. And when we forget, like is the Israelites, that we are called by God, we start to think of God's gifts, this new way of life, his blessings, as a way to redeem ourselves. But the fact is we really have nothing to give back to God, do we? Are we really going to attempt to give back to God the gifts of his grace that he gave to us and pretend that they earn us favour? What a foolish thing we can do. Well, there's many today, both inside and, out the inside and outside of the church, that say God's calling should not operate this way or does not operate that way. Rather, they say it's universal, it's general, it's to everybody in the same way. Well, if that's true... Good luck to them with making sense of this passage. But more important than that, if God's love is effective for everybody in the same way, who's making up the difference? It can't be from God making up the difference, so it must lie with men and their abilities because not everybody is saved. And so to reject sovereign grace is really to end up with a man-centred salvation. But I contend that everybody who says this I think should know better. Because they themselves, and you and I, we exercise our own love and mercy in a selective way. What do I mean? Well, take the covenant of marriage, for example. If you're a married man here today, well, I think there are some here, I can safely assume that you do not love all women the same as you love your wife. And if you do, you've got a problem. No, you chose to enter into covenant with one particular woman, and you chose to love her. It was to her you made specific promises. And when you made those promises, you did so, I hope, to the exclusion of all other women. And so it was only her that entered your home to live. It was only her that took your name. It was only her that you provide for. She gets to carry around your credit card to the shops, maybe spending too much money. Why? Why is that? Because your love is a particular love. It's a particular woman that you chose to enter into a covenant with. 
And so marriage is a picture of God's special love for his people that he has chosen. Now, it's only a picture, I know. It does fall short of representing God. But it's sufficient illustration, I think, for us to realise that we can't accuse God of wrongly exercising his love when we do that in a similar fashion. And think about it, really. If marriage didn't exclude others, what would be special about your marriage? And I bet your wife agrees. I dare you, men. Go home tonight, tell your wife that she's no more special to you than all the other women you know, and then make your bed on the couch. You see, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous. And yet sometimes that's how we think about God's calling, as if it were non-specific, as if he did not bestow his love on us and bring us into his covenant. And so Israel's not an ethnic line. They are a people whom God has chosen to receive grace. And here is how this then therefore links up with Paul's gospel message in Romans, because if righteousness is a gift of grace, if God can call Jacob and not Esau, then guess what? He can call those who are not Jews, but Gentiles. Likewise, if God can judge the descendants of Abram, harden their hearts, so to speak, and they don't believe, then he can release those who are not Jews from their unbelief, and he can bring them into the family of God. Because salvation, that is, depends completely on God having mercy, he can call whomever he wants, even us, verse 24. He has called not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, Israel is whomever he decides to have mercy on. And so he can graft the Gentiles into the root of his olive tree. That that metaphor comes from chapter 11. Or as prophet Hosea writes, verse 25, Those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. But likewise, it's equally true that God is able to be merciful to some of the descendants of Abraham. As Isaiah teaches in verses 27, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Jews all deserve judgment, but some receive mercy in Christ. And the Gentiles all deserve judgment, but some receive mercy in Christ. Which is why I think Paul sums up chapters 9, 10 and 11 with these words. In verse 32 of chapter 11, he says this, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And so he finishes with what I said this whole passage is about, that the Israel of God that inherit the promises are those who belong to Jesus by faith, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile. So let me conclude today. What do we do with this scripture? How should it impact us? Well, I think the first thing this week or this month, go and read chapters 10 and 11. Don't leave Romans 9 in isolation. Uh, Soak in this gospel of grace. See how God's kindness that only depends on him fits together saving Jews and Gentiles as one people. Uh, Secondly, realise this. If it were not true that God sovereignly elected a people based only on his desire to be merciful to some, then there's no room for us in God's house because you and I are probably not of Abraham's natural descent. So if God's promises depended on a family tree, you and I are excluded. Or worse, God's promises have failed, haven't they? Because most of the Israelite family tree have either been destroyed or they remain in unbelief. 
But because it is true that salvation is for God's elect, there is room for anybody who God wishes to call. And so I can stand here and say today with Paul what he says in Romans chapter 10. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? Does your heart and mouth reflect one who is called by God? I mean, think about it. If God hardened the hearts of the Jews, yet in his mercy he opened the door to outsiders so that they can come in by faith, and then you say, no thanks, I'm good. Well, what an insult to God. And if he didn't spare those who came from Abraham because they didn't believe, would he spare you or I if we didn't believe? Well, I've got one final thought, and, and that's this. I think this scripture teaches us that grace is not cheap. It's not general. It's not universal. Saving grace is not those things. It's not to be taken for granted. It can't be demanded. It isn't deserved. You see, God's kindness to his Christians is not really like rice at a wedding that's indiscriminately thrown around and it just lands on everybody. Now, the kindness of God in salvation is like being the bride that special one whom God has brought into his house. Well, I was wondering that sometimes perhaps that's why we live half-hearted lives as Christians, because we have a shallow understanding of his grace to us. See, we think that he sprinkled sort of random blessings of rice on us, but actually, should we be getting ready for the honeymoon? Is it that we continue to cherish our sins and flirt with false gods because we don't think of, his, of, of much of his love for us? Could we be a little bit like Israel in Malachi? I have loved you, says the Lord, and we say, well, have you loved us? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I set my special love on you, can't you see? And so we ought to enjoy this particular love of God and as his one and only. Do you know this love and do you enjoy him? Well, let me pray for us, brothers and sisters, because I think we won't enjoy his love the way we're meant to, unless he helps us. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Uh, we know that it exalts you to the highest uh, place. We know that you are in charge of everyone's destiny, Lord. And in mercy, you've reached down and you've saved some. You've called us in the Lord Jesus Christ and counted us your own, Father. And that is a great blessing, a great pleasure that we get to know you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that even from this community, you would call others as we proclaim the gospel and that you would bring in the full number of your people, that they may be before you on Judgment Day and to your glory. Lord, help us to understand these things, help, them to, help us to cherish them, help us to take great confidence in the work that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.